Thank you so much for tuning into Beam. We're on a short break this week, but are happy to be sharing an episode of the Growth Fire podcast, hosted by Kevin Horrigan, president of Spinutech. Kevin talks with Super League CEO Ann Hand about the development of business opportunities across the 3D internet, offering a deeper dive into many of the topics we've covered here. You can also catch our direct conversations with both Ann and Kevin in prior Beam episodes. For now, please enjoy the Growth Fire podcast, and we'll be back with a new episode of Beam on February 15th. Welcome to the Growth Fire podcast, where we engage with top business leaders who share their experiences and provide real insights that help them attract customers, retain staff, and grow their bottom line. Now, let's get started with the show. Hi there, my name is Kevin Horrigan, and I'm the host of the show, where I featured inspiring business leaders from various backgrounds and industries who are willing to share their stories and insights. Today's podcast is brought to you by Spinutech. Spinutech is a leading digital advertising agency with 160 team members spread across the United States who help their clients attract new customers, grow existing relationships, and ultimately be more successful. Spinutech, thank you so much for your sponsorship today. Our guest today is Ann Hand. Ann is the chair and CEO of Super League, a NASDAQ publicly traded company known to be your rocket ship to the metaverse. So what does rocket ship to the metaverse mean to most lay people? Super League is a global leader in business immersive entertainment experiences, mostly in the gaming metaverse, on platforms like Roblox and Minecraft. Through Ann's visionary guidance, the company has seen record audience engagement and revenue growth. Prior to Super League, Ann's career was venture-backed with Project Frog, and then big brands we know of like ZP and Arco and many more. Ann's journey has not gone unnoticed and has been recognized by, recently, Forbes 50 Over 50 Award, Ad Age Leading Women of 2022, the 100 Most Intriguing Entrepreneurs by Goldman Sachs, 10 Most Powerful Women Entrepreneurs by Fortune Magazine, and many, 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 many more. And welcome to the Growth Fire Podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Kevin. Yeah, and I'm super excited. I know we've had a few conversations here and you're my first guest uh, with Metaverse experience here. So I'm sure myself and the audience are going to be super excited to learn more about this. But before we get into the Metaverse, let's talk about the about the past here. And tell us a little bit where you grew up when you're a little girl, maybe what you aspired to be when you're in the professional world, maybe what you studied and a little bit more background about yourself, please. Sure. I never miss a chance to say I'm from Indiana. So thank you for giving me that chance out of the gate. I'm very proud of my Midwestern roots. Uh, the youngest of four girls, uh, played a lot of sports um, growing up, um, but I also would ride my beautiful blue Schwinn 10-speed over to the bowling alley that had an arcade. Uh, my games are Galaga and Centipede, so I, I do not define myself as a hardcore gamer, but I really love learning about the the current young gamers and how gaming has changed so much. Um, and as far as you know, what I wanted to be, my dad was an entrepreneur and a great salesperson. And so we didn't talk about things at dinner table, like I wanna be a ballerina or, and there's nothing wrong with that, but we talk about business problems. You know, he'd say things like, what do you think you should have, could invent? In fact, I'm, I'm pretty positive. I did come up with the idea for the flip top cap on toothpaste ahead of it being invented um, because I hated that toothpaste tube, especially with three older sisters and sharing a bathroom and all that stuff. But um. But I did say, I did declare once to my father that I was going to be the president of IBM one day. Wow. 
And on my uh, first night in my dorm room, my freshman year of college, I found a letter he wrote me that he put under my pillow. And he talked about me being the president of IBM. Now, I think I said that in about sixth grade. So he wasn't letting up. Um, And when I called him my senior year of college to tell him that I got offered a job with mobile oil, he said back, but what about IBM? And the truth is I did interview with IBM. They came to campus and I did not make it past the first round. So there you have it. That's a great story. And that's, that's, that's an amazing story. And we're going to dig deeper into that story, reminiscing to your Indiana background. I grew up in Pennsylvania, not very far away. I had a blue Schwinn 10 speed myself um, and um, you have rode many, many miles on that uh, Schwinn twin speed uh, for, for all of my childhood and loved every moment of it. Um, so that that's too funny. It was called a Schwinn Caliente Blue. Oh, and, I, and I did have a boys. That was cool to have oh, you did. So we might have been riding the same blue Schwinn. I'm going to dig for pictures. I'll send them to you later. I still have them. I used to. I, I have a picture too. We're going to do that. Yes. Yeah. And I used, I used to wax mine to make it look extra clean. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to ride it almost. Yeah. I rode it every day. I put a lot of miles on that bike. I even brought it to college. Um, so, and, you know, a very interesting background. Can you tell us a little bit? So when you, you know, growing up and your dad was an entrepreneur salesman, you didn't talk about Valerie and at the, at the, at the dinner table, we talked about business problems as you were, as you were younger and then, you know, going into college, tell us about the transition, about what you thought your vision going into college, where you went to school, yeah. Did you stay with that strategy or did you deviate? Maybe tell us a little bit about that and then we'll get into your career. Yeah, it's uh, it definitely deviated. You know, I, I've always liked numbers, um, did well and, you know, very good scores in math and SATs and all of that. Um, two of my three older sisters were econ majors and went into banking. Um, and so I, I went to a liberal arts school called DePauw with a W at the end in, in, in Indiana, Greencastle, Indiana. But I just knew I wanted to be an econ major, and and I loved it. I love supply and demand. I had this fantastic professor who used to work at GE, and he would talk about gin and tonic and their relationship to each other versus guns and butter, which has no relationship. And so it felt very intuitive to me, econ. Um, and the whole time I was in college, I just thought, well, you know, I really just all moved to Chicago, like pretty much everybody who's an alum from that school does, and I'll get a job in banking. Right. And I was also a Goldman Sachs scholar. I'd gotten a little scholarship. And so, I, you know, I also thought, oh, Goldman Sachs, you know, that's that's the biggie out there. But I really wanted a job with Northern Trust Bank. Wow. And I did make it to like the third round with them. And I didn't get the job offer. Um, but in my mind, again, banking was the track. Now, uh, Mobile Oil comes to campus. And the career plan and placement person says, hey, can you do me a favor? They really need women. Will you take a slot? And I said, yeah, I'll do it. But you're going to give me the IBM interview, right? And the Goldman interview. And so I kind of bartered. And then the crazy thing happens. I mean, as first, the guy that the poor soul who had to drive from Chicago down to Nowhereville, Indiana, um, who's really scratchy his head, saying, I don't even know where I am. He's uh I ended up really bonding with the interviewer. He looked just like my brother-in-law. And we had this great conversation. Um, And then the only job I got offered was mobile oil. Now, the job title said marketing rep. And I thought, well, I don't know. It sounds like advertising to me. And, you know, back then, there was no Google. Right. They really kept it a mystery. It was by intention. So about two weeks after graduation, I drove 
a car, my new car, my dad had to help me co-sign out to Fairfax, Virginia, where I was going to go into three months of training. There were about 17 of us in this inaugural class. It was three were women. And boy, these people had turned down big jobs like Coca-Cola and all these companies. And I was thinking, man, I have made it. Right. <laughs> no, I'm in one of those like lady suits. Like we used to wear these suits, blazers and big pleated skirts and a floppy scarfy looking tie. I don't know. So we were all, yep. We were all dressed up, you know, and seen in this big boardroom. And at one point they, they pointed to a beautiful mobile mart gas station outside. Um, it had a convenience store service bay is about 12 pumps, a car wash. And they said, see that gas station, you're going to work there for the next few months. And if you're lucky, we're going to let you run them. And we were sitting there all bummed thinking, what have we done? A marketing rep and oil companies are the people who run the gas station uh, or manage the franchisees. So I used a, a telephone calling card and went to a phone booth because again, no cell phones. I called my parents and I'm sure there were a few 21 year old tears in that phone call. But my dad had owned restaurants growing up and I always worked at them, bus tables. And so I, once I kind of got my head around it, I, I thought, you know, I like retail. Um, so after the few months of training, they gave me eight inner city Philadelphia um, company owned stores. Cool. And so I really, for the first five years of my career, I ran just more and more larger territories of uh, convenience stores, gas stations, and, you know, just, you know, shifting to different regions and all of that stuff. Um, and what I learned going back to banking is, is I'm, I like to be out talking to people. I'm a marketer at heart. I love that I could flip the gondola around in the convenience store. And if I face the Frito bags towards the, the soda sales, my fountain soda sales went up because, you know, people grab that bag and they're thirsty. And, right. and I, I got to, it was probably that first assignment, those eight stores, it was probably about $25 million P and L at 21 wow. years old. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, it's kind of could be a reality show today. Throw the girl from Indiana into the middle of Philly and yeah. you know, crazy stuff happens at 24-7 stores. And so I learned and I later did a finance role in the various stints I did in my career where I was really crunching numbers and sitting at a desk. And I thought, wow, talk about a bullet dodge not getting that job at Northern Trust. Yeah, no, no, yeah. And leaning into, you know, my strengths. Um, so, yeah. No, and it's funny to share that story. And um, in my mind, I'm processing, you're proud of your Indiana roots. You graduate college, you go into this marketing role. Uh, day one, you learn you're going to be managing, you know, a mobile gas station convenience store car wash. And your first assignment is eight in Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I was one of only a few territories in all of the U.S. where our managers were permitted to carry guns. Well, um, most of my stores had bullet-resistant glass between the cashier and the, the food items and right. the, the customer. And often, I loved living in Philly. I had I had the time of my life. I was, you know, the Phillies were winning the World Series, and and it's such a great town. And often, when I meet people from Philly, they'll say, "Oh." Oh, it can't be that bad. The neighborhood you had, and see the way when you when you run retail, you you talk about your stores as intersections. 
Yes. And I could start and you you know, you drive around them all day. You 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 lived and breathe them. And so I start rattling off my my corners. <laughs> and people kind of always do a little, whoa. <laughs> and you know, I had to do things like when you have grand openings, the company gives you about a, a $350 budget to create a, a marketing excitement bonanza right. for the weekend. Right. Well, I got the free Pepsi trailer and I got the other things the vendors gave you for free. But the big item that I knew would draw a frenzy into my gas stations that were opening was if I could wear a costume or have somebody wear a costume, be a character. And so I spent my whole 350 on... Um, a Raphael Ninja um, Mutant Ninja Turtle costume, right? And with a big shell. And if I didn't return the shell, if the shell was cracked, I wouldn't get the deposit back. And here I am, twenty-two, maybe years old at this point. Maybe I've got six months under my belt. I didn't realize, even just with labor laws, that I couldn't make one of my cashiers wear it. Wow! So I said, "Hey, does anyone want to put this on?" And they said, "No." And that's not in my job description. And I went, oh, well, I guess it's not. You're right. So I wore it. And wow. I had two grand openings happening that day. So I was driving back and forth in my little Honda, everything but the head of Raphael. Um, and and I ran around those pumps. Wow. Um, that's what you had to do, man. You yep. had to get gas sales up. Yeah. So, um, so tell us, where did that starting point of of mobile where, where did that evolve to yeah well effectively you know and this is the the difference back you know when i was coming out of college making it was taking a job with a big company and then usually the rule of thumb was when they tell you to move you move you never say no because that's a uh, that puts a ceiling on your career and also because they are these massive big companies if you're if you're doing well then they're probably grooming you to be a generalist so at some point, you know, even as I was at McDonald's for a while and then Amico, which became BP because BP bought it, you know, they were constantly, you know, okay, now you've done a lot of operational roles in the field. Let's bring you into the office to do maybe a strategy job. Um, I got moved at one point, you know, to Hong Kong even, and there I did a finance role. And boy, did that really sell home why I should not be in those banking jobs. I had my finance textbook open from grad school the whole time I was in that wow. wow. And I was dealing in like spreadsheets with three different currencies. I, it was just, it was not my best performance, I'd say. But right. they intentionally, you know, I did a real estate job for a while. They're intentionally rounding you out. Yes. Um, and so that was good because the more they're doing that, the more they're saying that maybe one day you can run a big P&L. Right. And that's making it in those big companies is being a global PL owner. And yes. and over time, through a variety of different roles, I finally um achieved that that position when I was working in London for VP. Yeah, congratulations. What a what a what a journey. So you had this, you know, aspiring career with Mobile and these acquisitions had you you get a, you get to go to Tokyo, you get to go to London, you well, Hong Kong, Hong Kong. Hong Kong, no. I'm sorry, I get to go to Hong Kong, end up in London, get to be in charge of this global PL. But at some point, you decide to go work for a startup. Tell us yeah. about that. Yeah, I mean, the there are a couple of things going on. I had been in London for close to nine years. I was on my third position. That last position, I was running all of our B2B and B2C brands globally. And love that. Um, I, I had a marketing MBA from Kellogg, but I'm not a classically trained marketer. And so when our beloved CEO at the time asked me to do that job, 
um, I was just so excited because I was kind of, they would call me Miss Brand sometimes in the company. Now, I always jokingly said, you know, I would definitely think about and live the brand through the different products and offers that I ran. But, you know, I'm also in a sea of petroleum and chemical engineers. So right, right. it's not like there was a lot of competition for the Miss right. Brand people. But um, but I had a great time my last few years there running, you know, BP owns tons of brands, um, food brands, all kinds of different brands. And I just had a great time working with the big global ad agencies and all those really um, deeply trained experts in inside right. brand management and all of that. Um, and then really what happened is I think a couple of things. One is I kind of woke up a little bit and went, wow, am I never going to leave London? And at the time I was dealing with aging parents and and being, you know, out of the States for for pretty long, chunky amount of time. Right. Um, a little bit too of going, gosh, I got way higher than I ever imagined. <laughs> and I'm I'm about to turn 40. And um like, you know, maybe, maybe the next three jobs won't be as fun as the last three. Or right. maybe it'll be more of the same versus this really accelerated experience I'd had. Yeah. Um, and I had bought a, a little house in LA, a little two bedroom, old rundown cottage. It's now about a hundred years old for LA. That's old. Um, and every time I'd go there for work, I, you know, the sunshine, I just was like, Whoa, wouldn't this be fun to try this out? So, um, and, and coincidentally at the same time, I was introduced to uh, a couple partners at Kleiner Perkins. And they had poached one of my work colleagues to run one of their startups. They had put a lot of money into clean tech. I had done a lot with sustainability and, and clean fuels. And they were looking for clean tech CEOs. And, and you know, I was such a big company girl. Like right. that's the lingo I knew. Um, and I think I got very naively, I kind of got super flattered that they were like, you'd be good at this. I'm like, yeah, my dad's an entrepreneur. I would. Yeah. And so um, I did a bit of like uh, some EIR executive residence work for them and just started to build a network and um, over time got to know various different VCs and eventually um, planted myself in, in LA, but started interviewing and I took a job running a startup. And I have to tell you, I mean, talk about the biggest bucket of humility dumped on my head. Wow. Um, the beautiful thing about big companies is they have so much heft and infrastructure and scale. If I wanted to make a difference in getting cleaner fuels into India or China, I could flip a switch and put $50 million into it and have meaningful, big impact. And that's where I have a lot of respect for the power of what these big companies can do to really change. Yes. Good yes. way. Um I sat there because my when I was running that global $3 billion liquefied gas business, I had about 3,000 employees under me. Um, I go into this startup that has like 14 people, and I think, well, I mean, how hard can this be? Right, right. I mean, I haven't run a team that small since ever. Yeah, you know? 22. Um, well, boy, when you are starting from scratch and you don't even have a business model or a product, it is so humbling. Um, I felt like I was half, I thought I had a golden touch before that golden touch got completely challenged. And it was a really challenging five years on a personal basis too, because I loved our brand and our product. I do think we were too early and that's a really hard thing to learn in early stage companies Yes, and really understand scaling is hard. 
I had only worked for companies that had scale. Right. But scale is hard. And so, but I did learn the ways of Silicon Valley and met a lot of really fantastically supportive VCs along the way and learned what runway meant. That's a yes. that's a bad thing. It means you run out of cash. Never right. worried about payroll before when I was at BP. So um it was it was good for me, but it was weird to be in such a peak at BP and then to really kind of feel like you're really kind of um taking a pretty serious setback in your capability to do your job and, and do it well. So um the reason that I decided to stay and try out Super League as a kind of a second act in early stage is I thought, well, what would have been the point of building that toolkit for five years and learning all of that if I shouldn't give it another go? Right. And maybe this time the timing will be right. So the winds will be in our favor. But um, there's certainly times too where I thought, geez, Anne, I could have made my life really easy by just running back to big companies. Right. I know them. I know how they work. I know how to maneuver in the system to get things done. Um, it, it was definitely a comfort zone. Now, now it's been 12 years, so not so much a comfort zone today. Right, right. But I'm grateful for the training all the same. So, I mean, obviously in your career, seeing so much, um, so, so many different points in which, you know, big companies start up. Let's talk about Super League. So uh, Super League is super fascinating. And why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about Super League? Yeah. I mean, Super League, it's important for the arc of the story is when it, we started, the company was about six months old or so when I was introduced to it. They were looking for a CEO. Um, and I probably spent a couple months kind of on the fence about it. I, you know, I was I was weighing all my options. And, um, and um, what they were doing is they were effectively using movie theaters that are empty half the time. This is pre-O. Right. right. Um, and latching on to this excitement around really the shifting landscape in video gaming in general. Video gaming had at that point already become bigger than the film box office. It was a dominant form of entertainment. And people weren't just gaming like you and I did just right. in teenage years. It's now in right. lifestyle interest. And yeah. the games have changed too. And of course, there's tons of genres of games, but they're highly social and there's a lot of community around the game. Um and so what effectively the company was doing is using empty movie theaters as uh, the playing fields for effectively like competitive video gaming experiences. Some people call it esports. Yep. But think about a little league um, system because we were focused a lot on youth. So imagine us bringing, you know, 50 kids into a movie theater in a given city on a Saturday morning. Um, and instead of them um, watching a movie, they're actually on their laptops and they're playing in a video tur- game tournament against a movie theater in Boston at the same time. Uh, yeah. So we have these city v city battles and um, and we're running effectively a little league system for and we build it around Minecraft, which is important for our history because, you know, when I I because I I understood so well from our beloved CEO, uh, John Brown at BP, he's the one who rebranded the company with the new logo and that's because he had gone on a buying spree and he had bought a bunch of companies and he really believed that rebranding was was the ultimate act of inclusion to yes. take away everyone's badges and yes. unify us. And yes. he also talked a lot about brand being the root of strategy and culture. And so when I started with Super League, I did say to the, the board and early investors, you know, 
I really want to, after seeing some of these beautiful events with these young kids in these theaters and just seeing the diversity of the kids and talking to the parents and knowing enough about Minecraft to know that Minecraft has the underpinnings of STEM learning, yep. I really latched on to the idea of I want to build a brand that can debunk the myth of who a gamer is these days because it's not just introverted boys. And I want to, um, you know, take away the stigma that gaming's bad for you. Right. And I also want to prove a point, which is that gaming can be um, a very fair, safe, inclusive space for people, yes. that it can be a positive um, aspect of your life. And so I didn't get any pushback about creating a very parent-friendly, positive gaming brand, so to speak. Now, there was a point where we had run hundreds and hundreds of events across the country, and a live events business is very hard to scale. And it's kind of death by a thousand cuts to make yeah. money. Um, and so a couple you know, things happened. One, we realized we needed to be a digital company. Gamers are used to gaming at home. Right. And there's just too much friction getting mom to drive you across LA in traffic to get you right. to the theater. Um, the other thing that um, we were learning and it really got um, kind of like was like lighter fluid with the pandemic was that, um, you know, we had learned a lot about this Minecraft kid. And what we were seeing was this this beginning emergence of what we call these open world gaming platforms. So by that, we're talking about Roblox, Minecraft and now Fortnite. And those are different because what they do in those platforms is they give the the game development tools out to everybody. Yes. And you get to make your own maps and modify your own maps and game worlds. So Roblox right. has thousands and thousands of mini maps or game worlds. And why we were intrigued by that was first, when you look at the player who likes those, this Gen Z alpha, it's no different than the fact that they love TikTok. Um, they like co-creation platforms where they get to be the creator and, and the star. Well, similarly, they want to play in game platforms where the games are ever evolving and they can right. be a part of modifying them. And, and the other thing we learned was that with those kids is by us talking to that competitive kid, we were talking to way too small a slice. Because if you really look at Roblox, for the most part, it really speaks to a hyper-casual player, um, someone who's much more there for the socializing, right. the, the, the co-creation. I often say to investors and brands, you should almost think of it more as like a next-generation social media channel than yeah. a gaming platform, because for the most part, people are really just there socially. It's like a digital cul-de-sac. It's an extension of their physical play. Yes, And so that brings us to what Super League does today, because- with the pandemic and our and the R and D we had done and the understanding we felt we had built about these younger audiences of gamers, we made a decision to really double down on those open world platforms. Um, now, again, kids don't need VR headsets to play. There's already hundreds of millions of them in these worlds, um, and so there's a massive audience shift that's already occurred there. In fact, um, on average, a Roblox user today spends about 156 minutes playing Roblox a day. A day. The next closest social media channel is about 95 minutes on TikTok a day. Wow. So the shift has already happened. The way we monetize is that we bring brands into these worlds to meet and talk to this very hard to reach, you know, kind of right. increasingly now under 25 audience. So what the company is, is we are um, a very innovative, immersive, uh, uh, experienced publishing engine. And so what that means is, is that we bring brands into these, these worlds and we create um, 
custom experiences for them that are immersive experiences. Plus, we have some very um, clever, innovative, proprietary immersive media products to drive traffic to those. So um, we have a game studio. We have our, our uh, media products org. And what it allows us to do is to take down full programs for brands. So a good example is for Mattel. Um, they came to us and said, we want to celebrate Barbie's 60th anniversary of her dream house. We, in one mini game world or map inside Roblox, recreated a pop-up dream house that lives for 30 days where you could swim in the pool, you could DJ on the roof deck, try on clothes on the second floor, talk to digital Barbies. Yes. Um, we also dropped 3D Barbies, avatars, and other games where players could talk and she could tell them about her party. Right. Her party to drive traffic there. And during that month, we delivered 60 million visits for Mattel into Barbie's dream house. And the average dwell time was about seven to eight minutes. So it's kind of like product placement on steroids. But again, it's just, again, if you think of this as a social digital platform, just like Barbie has an Instagram fan base and a yes. following and she's pushing content every day, keep yes. that group engaged. We are just, we're able to create these virtual billboards or channels inside this new social platform so they can start building the Barbie fandom and deliver their campaign goals by by being reaching that audience as well. And so you're seeing, if I understand, you're seeing the metaverse is just another social channel, but it's a, but 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 it may be leading a social channel from an audience perspective of time per day, and it's just a, just another area or an outlet where brands can connect with an audience. That's right, and they can do it because it's more sticky than a lot of social media because it's very customized and personalized. You have your own digital avatar that you can change your hair every day and your clothes. You can talk to your friends in it. So it is uh, the closest thing to a virtual replica of your real life and how you interact. And um, and so to me, it's really, that's why I say it's the next generation of social media because it's just way more interactive and stickier. So it, it, it's it's absolutely fascinating and absolutely fascinating. You know, you mentioned a brand like Mattel and Barbie, right? Big brands, you know, I think the whole audience will know who Mattel and Barbie are, right? Is it only big brands who can benefit from this or can other brands benefit from it as well? Well, I mean, any brand who has the the budgets for it can, and it's not as costly as people think to dip their toe in and try things out. Um, what we found, if you look at the roster, we served over 80 brands last year. It is big names, you know, yes. it's it, and it's not just entertainment, like Paramount is one of our investors as well. But yeah, you know, we do a lot with um, Universal, Disney, Netflix, a lot with toy, the toy vertical. But you know, Toyota, um, financial services like Visa, State Farm, anybody who has a strategy to start engaging, maybe with a fourteen or fifteen year old audience, and uh, who's going to be a driver soon? Yes, who's going to be getting their first job? Um, we we do a ton in fashion and beauty, which makes sense because I jokingly often say I can't change my hair color five times in one day in real right. life. But I can have pink hair with my digital self. So yeah, yeah. we do a lot with L'Oreal, H&M. And that makes so much sense that you can the, push the boundaries of self-expression first digitally and then let it translate to to um, to to real life and your purchasing behaviors in real life. But I, I'd say that there's because the audience is so massive, um, it could be game changing for a small up and coming brand. Sure. To, to start to introduce and build brand awareness with this 
this massive audience there too. You know, when you say, you know, for a small brand, it could be game changing, things like that. I, I think at the Super Bowl and you think about the few startups per year who, yeah, the right word is gamble, but you know, you see some startups who use that Super Bowl promotion. Um, when you look at it, by the way, you don't have to spend a million dollars to try yeah, to work out. It's kind of what's beautifully democratizing about these open world platforms is um, just like everyone who plays in them can be a creator and make a game. We, we, we do that. We use the right. tool to make games too. Right. But there is something very beautiful about it. You know, you could spend $10,000 and you could get immediate feedback from millions and millions of players in the matter of a few hours about your brand. Um, that's cool. Yeah, that is really cool. And I think about traditionally, you know, how we get some of that feedback before and we'd have focus groups and these types of things. It sounds like you can almost create a, a metaverse focus group and with them not too much of a of an investment, get some incredibly fast feedback. So so I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that's one of probably the most exciting conversations I've had with some large brands. Is and again, I think this is where my big company time helps because I think a lot about what their business drivers are. You know, what's their PL? What are their headaches? You know, you look at like a toy company, it's supply chain, cogs. You know, it's a little bit of a hits driven business. You launch 10 new dolls, maybe three are hits, but you've got all that inventory and production right. and lead time. You know, I would say don't ever uh, 3D print a new doll or any type of new toy again and have clumsy focus groups. Um, and then a deal with all of that supply chain complexity and investment, drop 10 digital dolls that can be, we could spin that up in a matter of an, an hour or two. And let's just do a real-time focus group over the weekend. And we can tell you which ones people engage with, where they like their backstories. Imagine how this could transform yes. traditional companies' R&D process. They could be getting, instead of hitting three out of 10 dolls hit our hits, what if it was nine out of 10? Yes. Yeah. I mean, so I, I really, I, I, I said this before to um, somebody at Mattel that I've known for a long time, who's a, a wonderful guy. And so I could say it without being too cheeky, but right. I said, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if we found the next billion dollar toy line? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so I think there's something really profound and those are the conversations I, you know, I, I'm kind of an ex CMO. So when I'm talking to CMOs, I can say, I've been in your chair. I know. Right. right. And I love being able to to talk to them as an operator too and say, yeah. this is bigger than just where to campaign, run campaigns. Well, and I'm, I'm, I'm taking notes here because I could bring this to some of uh, Spinia Tech's clients because I think there's some opportunity there. I've got two more questions for you, Anne. So you just talked about the CMO. So, you know, <laughs> you know, CMOs on their journey, you know, is, managing traditional media, then it was digital advertising, then social media. Now we got this metaverse thing. You've obviously been through this journey here yourself, but it, is it intimidating? Are people welcome to it? Any advice for the audience on, you know, this ever-changing landscape? When does it end? And how do I, you know, where do I spend my time? And any feedback, experience, insight you want to share on that? Yeah. I mean, it's probably, it's been really fun the last year of my job because it's kind of the first time I feel like the old BP gal and the person I am today, like I can see it all coming together. I mean, trust me, when I had early on, when I was like jumped into Super League, I had even a, a, a top tier recruiter say like, what have you just done to your CV, right? right. And I did for the first couple of years, I, you could hear me almost apologizing for the wild jump. 
And then finally, I had a good friend say, just shut up and say you're versatile. And I I said, thank you for that advice. And I fixed that brand narrative in my head. But right. I say that because it's so, I get so much joy. I actually get energized when I talk to a CMO. And I'm like, I know, is this crazy? I even say to him, I said, I can't even, when I hear myself talking, sometimes I'll be like, is that you, Anne? Is that the is avatar? That, is, that, is that the gas station gal? Because right. I'm talking about, you know, I'm no technologist here. So, but I really enjoy breaking it down and making it digestible because I had to do it for myself. Yes. And and I had to realize this isn't that intimidating. And again, you don't need, these kids aren't wearing VR headsets and you don't have to worry that this is ruining their health. And so I love talking to, because let's be frank, I mean, a lot of CMOs and these big brands you know, we're all sitting in our 40s and 50s, right? Right. And kind of a little like all of what is this thing? Now, another 10 years passes and that next layer of CMOs, they're going to probably be playing these open world games, right? But but right now it is, we all kind of have to hold each other's hands a bit. And so what I say is, first of all, I do really appreciate, you know, the last 10, 15 years for the CMO, so much pressure on performance marketing. They've just kind of almost stripped a lot of the innovation out of the company. Absolutely. Or, or the, the job. And yes. um, yeah. And so what I say to them first, I can tell pretty quickly if if they're under the gun for that, you know, based on the, what they talk about their priorities are. And so right. the first thing I say is we could do such a small test that you could bury this so deep. This is zero risk. Right, right, There's right. No political risk here. Yep. Through the process, you're going to learn so much. You're going to be comfortable talking into your org the way I'm trying, I'm talking to you. And that is going to, I think, on a personal level, change your relationship in the boardroom. Because if you're now the person, imagine, you know, that you're at Hasbro and now you're the person saying, I think we should find the next toy line here. I've got, I'll tell you where the next focus group is. It's right here. I just dabbled from a campaign perspective and look at this off the charts ROI and engagement I got, but I've got a bigger strategic idea. I think it has the chance to change the the uh, the voice of the strategic CMO. Yes. Uh, yes. But they can get their toe in in small ways. Um, they're going to get the big engagement. I'll give you a quick case study on Chipotle because it also shows that, again, CMOs don't have to, a lot of the, the, the kind of curse a little bit of some of these early campaigns that people were testing is a lot of people said, oh, don't believe the hype. It's just all these big numbers, big numbers, big numbers, you know, the 60 million visits to Barbie's dream house. But how did it really drive the P&L? Right. Well, because I think Super League starts things really trying to solve the problem of the brand. Um, I think our Chipotle activation is probably one I'm most proud of. Um, we built a, build a burrito um, restaurant and you could go in and you could make a burrito, put whatever you want in it, wrap it, unwrap it, eat it. Um, you know, again, it's not rocket science, these games in many ways. Now, the average dwell time that people spent making their burrito is about 14 minutes. So I have laughed with the wow. Chipotle CMO about people might eat a virtual burrito longer than they eat a real one. Like, is that would be the case? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But what was crazy about that one as well is there was a, a maze where you could find a secret word and the secret word was burrito. And if you downloaded the Chipotle app on your phone and you typed in the word burrito, then you got a free in real life burrito. We gave away 130,000 real burritos in 30 minutes. And to this day, 
It is still the number one digital app download day for Chipotle ever and the second highest digital food sales day ever. So that excites me as a marketer because if we can show the marketer owning the full funnel and the way this can introduce them to new audiences and convert them, um, I, to me, it, it's a silver bullet. And that excites me as a marketer. Those are some, some, yeah, those are some amazing um, statistics there. And you know, those are things to celebrate and with brands we know, but it sounds like it doesn't have to be a brand we know too. And I couldn't agree with you more today. The pressure on the chief marketing officer today in performance metrics and this is just, just it's, um, you know, like you say, you can tell in a couple of minutes conversation where they are in their journey with their employer. It's, 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 it's the pressure is just tremendous these days. And yeah, advertising costs are getting greater. Consumer behavior is becoming more difficult. And, and yeah, it's just, it's just a very, very difficult landscape out there today. This sounds like such a refreshing opportunity to try something different, innovative, um, but not too risky, but maybe humongous upside on the same point as well. Yes. Yes. And um, thank you for sharing all this. This has been amazing. I have a feeling there's where people want to reach out to you after they've watched or listened to this podcast. Um, what's the best way that someone could connect with you if, after they've had a chance to listen to this? Yeah. I mean, hit me up on LinkedIn or just send me an email at and.hand at superlink.com. And thank you so much for joining us with today. We wish you so much success in your ongoing journey. Congratulations on what you've done so far, BP to Metaverse and all these different things here. Um, super, super impressive conversation today. And thank you so much and good luck on your journey. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Growth Fire podcast. We'll see you again next time and be sure to click subscribe to get future episodes. Thank you.